Thank you all for joining our live stream. It's dedicated to this year's International Day for Disaster Risk Reduction. The theme is on fighting inequality for a resilient future, and I think that really resonates with uh, Tomorrow City's uh, mission. So across the world, cities are expanding at unprecedented rates. And a great part of this expansion is and will keep um, happening in areas which are already exposed to multiple natural hazards, such as earthquakes, floods, landslides. Um, combined with the changing climate, this growth has the potential to dramatically increase disaster risk. However, risk is not evenly distributed, and we see that the poorest communities are usually the most affected. So today, and together with Professor Mark Pelling, which is a professor of risk and disaster reduction and Tomorrow City's director, Thaisa Comelli, a social sciences lead in Tomorrow City's and postdoctoral research associate, both of them from the Institute of Risk and Disaster Reduction at uh, UCL, London, and Tevi Despandi, uh, which is a re research fellow uh, at the London School of Economics and Social uh, and Political Science. We will explore how Tomorrow City's hub is working actively across several cities in the Global South to foster inclusive disaster risk reduction. So to Tomorrow Cities, through uh, its interdisciplinary approach, is employing a one-of-a-kind disaster risk reduction framework that fosters a transition from crisis management to risk-informed planning and decision-making that strengthens the voice of the urban poor. So let's, let's just hear it from our guests. Um, I'll start with you, Mark. Mark, uh, as I mentioned briefly in the, in the introduction, our collective experience shows that low-income communities typically bear the brunt. However, the situation arises from a complex interplay of factors, including increased exposure to hazards and vulnerability. Uh, although these are somehow related concepts, they are very different. Could you explain the relation and elucidate how low-income communities tend to find themselves in the unfortunate situation of being both more exposed and more vulnerable? Thanks, Sergio. Pleasure to be here. And so, let, let me start by just underlining the importance of the statement you've made and then take us through some of the ways in which uh, we, we engage with risk as a concept and, and drivers of poverty and, and exclusion that lead to, to risk. It's one of, one of my roles is as a coordinating lead author for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change for their urban chapter and a, a piece of work that we completed for the last assessment report was to look across all of the world regions all of the world regions and to ask experts in those world regions for current risk. So not even thinking about future climate informed risk for, for current risk associated with rainfall, with storm surge, temperature extremes, water security and food security in urban areas. What level of risk was resolved through existing risk management? Now we asked the experts in these these regions to consider the richest and the poorest populations by by quartile so for the richest and the poorest populations so we were able to get a, a sense of how far for each of those major uh, hazards uh, existing infrastructure for risk management whether it's nature-based solutions physical like seawalls and drains or even social policy uh, like insurance mechanisms and social security, how far all of this was able to reduce risk and, and how far there was an inequality. And there's a couple of exceptions, but essentially for all world regions, 
current risk, the current investment in risk infrastructure is inadequate. So, and we will all have experienced this, no, or, or have certainly seen on the news that all cities in all world regions where there is a hazard, the, the, the infrastructure is inadequate. And for all cities, all world regions, all hazards, there's inequality baked into that. And that inequality grows in some places if we move from infrastructure to reduce risk that exists to infrastructure reduce risk that is planned. So in some places, implementing planned risk reduction actually exacerbates inequality. So that's where we are. We're in a world where increasingly urbanization processes that have already generated inequality are generating more inequality in the distribution of risk. So if you allow me another minute or so, let me let me kind of lay out a little bit about what some of some of the driving forces that colleagues might talk to. So when we talk about risk and disaster risk reduction, we understand risk as having three components. And each of these has an association with, with inequality and poverty. Uh, the first is exposure. So uh, the extent to which when there is a hazard, a flood, for example, where you are affects whether you're going to be hurt by that flood. So it's simply the distribution of the hazard and the associated human assets or natural assets. And you can see that leads to particular interventions. That's where most risk reduction is in controlling the extent of hazard. There's a second step, which is physical vulnerability. And this has to do with the design of infrastructure and buildings so that if those assets in some way are damaged, course that might damage the value of the asset and therefore somebody's pocket but also it could then lead to harm to individuals or economy livelihoods ability for a school to function or a hospital to function with all sorts of knock-on effects that you can imagine would affect particularly low-income groups who may be more dependent on some smaller subset of uh, national infrastructure uh, and so less able to adapt if a particular asset, hospital, school or home is hit. There's quite a lot of work on physical vulnerability as well, uh, insurance, for example. And the third element is social vulnerability. Now, this is determined in large part by demography, your age, your ability, whether um, you know you're, you have some uh, pre-existing health conditions, for example, that might make you susceptible to heat wave events or skin or respiratory infections if there's a, a flood and prolonged waterlogging. But in many, in many people also it includes what, what we think of as governance aspects of social vulnerability. For example, uh, rule of law or access to information, uh, finance that can allow individuals to make uh, informed decisions and to hold those who make decisions on their behalf to account. So the responsiveness and transparency of local government, national government, and so on. There's, there's actually much less work in that social vulnerability space. So there's a whole world of possible solutions to risk that are not engaged with around social vulnerability. And of course, you can read into what I've said, the myriad ways in which your access to finance or political representation will affect your um, the degree to which you're exposed or exposed to hazard, physical or social vulnerability. And, and there are structural 
elements of this. If if you don't have access to money, um, because you know you weren't uh, perhaps and uh, you didn't enjoy access to education because of structural poverty that may go back for generations or may be structured around particular ethnic or gender even lines, uh, without access to to money or social representation, you're unlikely to be able to live in land um, or have access to property that is not exposed. So the cheapest land, the cheapest property will be that that's exposed to hazard or is physically vulnerable and it's liable to collapse or damage. So by, by dint of being in low income or unable to access social housing, you're exposed, you face physical vulnerability. Now there's one group in society that's particularly uh, vulnerable in this way. And those, those are renters. So those people who rent accommodation, whether that's in the formal or the informal sector, have much less ability to improve their property. Uh, so, so tend to be uh, particularly at risk. Um, but I'll just I'll just wrap up then um, by by the, by perhaps it's a bit of a, a tagline which is we often think of urbanization as a, as a process that accumulates risk uh, through decisions, through the functioning of the market, through the functioning of often incomplete social policies, uh, risk accumulates amongst low income marginalized groups. And our task as researchers working in this field is to try and break those cycles of risk accumulation and uh, so that's that's the mission that excites us and, and drives us forward. Yeah. yeah, I think that really wraps it up very well and kind of uh, sets the uh, the stage for uh, the next the next question that I, that I, that I would ask, uh, and that is um, still with you, Mark. If you just very quickly before I move on to um, talking to Taser, so that really resonates with Tomorrow City's um, remit, and especially this this idea of instead of trying to manage present and near-term risk, how the uh, hub is employing this forward-thinking approach and thinking about future risk. So not exactly what's happening now or will happen in the very near future, but what can happen, at, let's say, 20, 30 years in advance and how, how that's important uh, to address the issues that you've just spoken. If you could quickly just um, talk a bit about that or if you we can go back to it on a later stage in, in, in any case if you if you'd like that's that's great thanks thanks again so what i find the beauty of tomorrow cities it's a five-year program working across now nine cities with something like 90 collaborators from science across social science arts and humanities physical science engineers community mobilizers government and local government representatives as of all that richness over the first four years I would say certainly three years of the project, we, we really explored a whole range of methodologies and it became very apparent that particularly given the context of the last 40 years of work before Tomorrow Cities, where there's been a real impasse in the ability to break those cycles of risk accumulation. So again and again, despite huge investments in science for risk assessment, Act, action around uh, housing and land rights for the urban poor. Still, as cities grow, low-income groups are concentrated in places that are exposed, living in buildings that are vulnerable and face their own social vulnerability because of structural poverty and exclusion. 
So how how can we have any purchase on that on that problem as as a bunch of academics? And where we landed after these four years of conversation was a realization that the that the future and a particular element of the future is a place which isn't yet owned by dominant interests in the city. It isn't yet shaped by people's assumptions about what they are in their life. So very often those who are excluded from the market, who face lifetimes and generations of poverty, it's very difficult to imagine a life other than one of poverty, of course. But the future is a place where some of some of those assumptions of the people, those who have power and those who don't, can be disrupted or set aside. So it's a place where you can have a much more even conversation and escape from some of those sort of fault lines of inequality. And this is important now for two reasons. So I described the way in which risk accumulates in cities. Right now, we face both rapid urbanization, so the rapid growth of cities or the rapid in, uh, intensification and infilling of urban areas. And of course, we face climate change. So we face changing dynamics of hazard and changing dynamics of those buildings and the social conditions that generate exposure and vulnerability. And all that stuff that we're starting to feel now through observed risk associated with climate change was, was predictable probably 20, 30 years ago. If we look forward now, 20 or 30 years, we can see with ever more clarity what that agenda of risk, like that cocktail of risk might look like. But cities don't have tools to do that. And as important, people don't have a framework to do that. So we have neither planning tools nor a structured way for a popular discourse about the way in which the future city might look, the buildings, the land use, and how that look to the city uh, might be affected by climate change or indeed other hazards. So you can imagine a city that might extend into an area up a hill slope and suddenly landslides or geophysical risk become a new, ex new element of, of exposure. So there's all sorts of hazards that need to be considered. Um, and when we've, when we've deployed this uh, methodology in cities, it's really apparent that in, in some places you can imagine flood hazards just hasn't been considered quite, quite reasonably. It hasn't been a hazard in the past. But when you look to the future and you see how powerful an, a force flooding is going to be, and when you look at the current patterns of urban growth and how particularly low-income groups or critical infrastructure are going to be sited in places where you don't have site of hazard, when you don't have knowledge about hazard, um, the risk is there. So by, by looking at, by, by our work being able to produce tools that provide some insight into the future 20, 30 years, we're able to open a new frontier for planning, a new domain for planning and for popular discourse um, that leads to action today. So the point of this isn't to imagine what the future looks like and say, thank you very much, we'll, we'll check that against something in 30 years time, but to say, okay, gosh, now we realize that that's coming towards us quite quick 
And we need to start thinking about the legislation, investment in universities, the relationships between all of our stakeholders that can set us up for that future. And I'll just like, I'll end here. I know I'm talking a lot. But with going back to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, every time we release a global report, the things that are at the unusual end become the things that are likely. And the things that are at the moderate likely end become the things that have happened. The things that were expected are well, well below. So this sense of acceleration is just growing. So the things that are 30 years distant now, you know, might be with us in 15 years. So even that distance planning actually requires really urgent action now. But as I said at the beginning, there isn't yet a, a way in which we can access that future space. Planning is about the current city, the current risk, and so does not prepare people to live with and think about that future city that's really charging towards us. Thank you. That's 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 a very insightful thing. And well, let me disagree with one of your last statements. There is a way now. I think tomorrow's cities is that is one of that way. It has that framework to do that. So. Uh, I think specifically talking about the urban environments, and I would like to um, hear about Hitaiza now on this. Um, as Mark was saying, uh, well, urbanization seems like it is an inexorable force. It, 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 cities are growing at unprecedented rates. Uh, we're talking about things like six, seven percent per year in some of the cities. That's that's brutal. But we do have a lot of, of, of areas still to be urbanized. And there's a, like a time-limited opportunity to, to tackle the issues that Mark just mentioned, and we're doing that with Tomorrow Cities. Now, specifically talking about um, social inclusive disaster risk considerations into urban planning, could you kind of speak a bit about how Tomorrow Cities is doing just that and addressing these issues that uh, Mark is speaking? Absolutely. Um, thank you so much, Sergio, for inviting us to be here today. And thank you, Mark, for this amazing speech. It was just, it was a pleasure to hear. Um, so it is important to make clear that urban planning is one of the central objects of tomorrow cities. So we want to influence planning and to make planning better. But of course, that planning here is connected not only um, to the conventional spatial dimensions of the practice, but also to policymaking that supports urban development, right? So um, if planning is this, is, if, uh, if it is this object and we're trying to look at planning that reduces inequality, what are we trying to think about? And of course, uh, planning that is strongly infused by um, hazard consciousness and by this thinking about how to reduce risk and considering the factors, so risk, vulnerability, capacity, etc. So in tomorrow cities, before we even engage in any planning activities or prospective uh, forward-oriented uh, planning activities, first we look at the social landscape that we have in the present, and we try to, of course, understand how that social landscape and institutional landscape will change towards the future. So when we talk about inequalities, there are different lenses that we can use uh, to understand inequality and to try to build an urban planning procedure that is more inclusive. Now, it is important to recognize that in any planning procedure, it is very difficult to include all of the voices that need to be included. So there needs to be a strategy to understand um, which voices are more relevant or more 
um, prominent if we are talking about planning that is trying to reduce risk. And that is, of course, very context specific. There is no formula to do that, but there are a few lenses that help us to do it. So in Tomorrow Cities, for example, we have a few lenses that we use to try to understand the data that we have and um, the social groups that we see on the ground. So we try to look from the lenses of social inequalities, for example, to try and see um, gender-based inequalities or those inequalities that relate to race and ethnicity or that relate to income. And those are very strongly connected to conditions of social vulnerability. So by looking at these different social inequalities, we can try and understand um, which are the groups that uh, are potentially more um, vulnerable to hazards or of course, um, to potential hazards that, as Mark said, maybe we're not seeing them yet, but these people could be potentially vulnerable to, to hazards that are not um, so visible in the in the present. The second lens that we have in Tomorrow Cities is, is the one of environmental inequalities, which connects a lot to the theme of exposure. So trying to understand, for example, in a particular place where we're working with, if there are people that are systematically um, pushed towards uh, environmentally sensitive or hazardous, hazardous lands, which of course has to do with the first factor that I mentioned, social vulnerability, uh, but that is something that is very important to map and understand. The third thing that we try to map and understand is institutional inequalities. So how systematically somehow there are some groups or identities um, or individuals that are more or less included in decision making. Um, or more or less visible to, to formal planning institutions. And we also try to map that. And the fourth um, thing that we try to map is knowledge inequalities, because in a project like that, using conventional planning tools is very nice, but there are different ways to uh, see the world, experiment, experience the world, and also understand how to act. So those knowledge gaps, those knowledge, knowledge inequalities can also bring, uh, be brought into planning. And here I'm thinking of, for example, indigenous knowledges, um, endogenous uh, practices, and so on and so forth. So in Tomorrow Cities, we try to map those different types of inequalities to understand what do we have on the ground. And of course, we also try to bring data to understand if those voices in the present are still going to be there in the future. So how can we balance the needs in the present with the aspirations that people have in the, in the future. So we try to map the social landscape and we try to have a very honest conversation with different stakeholders about which from, from those groups, individuals, identities that we have mapped, who actually has been persistently excluded from the conversation that needs to be there to think about risk and those who have been persistently included, and they also need to be there because they can also yeah. engage in decision making to kind of uptake some of the uh, some of the lessons that we produce through the project. So that is, that is how we can try to to, to um, produce a more inclusive process. And of course, it is never perfect and it is never complete. There's always someone that is not part of the conversation and that needs to be. So that is the part of inclusion that I want to talk about. But there's also something very interesting that we do. That, that relates to that um, uh, ethos of inclusion. So when we invite people to participate in workshops, in co-production uh, workshops, uh, and there are several in Tomorrow Cities because uh, we need to think about the good future city, then we need to think about um, how do we translate that according to planning regulations, um, how do we match that with urban forecasts, then we need to understand the results of uh, risk assessment and modeling. So there are several workshops 
in tomorrow's cities. Uh, but interestingly, uh, when we invite those people, one of the first things that we do in tomorrow's cities is instead of asking people to look at business as usual scenarios or probable scenarios, we ask them to think of a good scenario. And we ask different groups to, to do that so we understand how different people that experience uh, urban or, or, or social realities differently, how they will come up with different visions for the city. But that's there comes the interesting thing of, of tomorrow cities because, well, first we're asking them to think of a good city first. So a good future city. And instead of departing from what will happen and try to react to that, uh, we're trying to actually, okay, let's start from what we want and then let's understand how we get there. Of course, we need to be realistic in the way that we do that. So we need to combine different future methodologies, but we don't ask them to think about themselves. So there is something about tomorrow cities that is it touches on issues of intergenerational justice. So we are asking them to think about a good future city for someone like them in the future. Of course, that this plays out differently depends on the types of groups that we invite. But let's say that uh, we have a group of a group of migrants that is participating in a workshop, and this group of migrants is thinking about a good future city, and we're going to use that as a starting point. Uh, to engage in, in motor hazard modeling and so on and so forth. But that group, uh, group of migrants, maybe some of them in 30, 50 years, and then comes the forward looking, maybe they won't be migrants. And maybe the youth within those migrant groups will have young people who will be not young anymore in the future. So we're not asking them to talk about their needs and aspirations in the present, we're asking them to think about a good future. So. Tomorrow Cities looks at the future from a very normative lens, or at least it departs from a very normative lens. And by normative, I mean that we're trying to explore people's values and aspirations, but we do that always looking at the future. So we're asking people to leave aside, at least for a couple of hours, their individual um, needs in the present and think about how is a good future for others. And interestingly, what that does is we put that object far in the future, the object of aspirations, of the desire. And by doing that, we allow people to find synergies. Because when we're talking about the present, the conflicts, they surface in a much stronger way because you need to think about your house, you need to think about your immediate needs. And of course, this is all very important and comes with a lot of ethical challenges for us to deal with. But when you put the object of the good future city far away in the future, then you start to see the commonality surfacing across the room. And that's very interesting. And that helps us to build scenarios that are inclusive, that are infused with a uh, with thinking of inequalities, but they're also informed by probabilistic data sets, by possible futures, by urban planning regulations that we use to match. So it's a very interesting approach, but it's one that is charged with hope. Um, and it is also charged with this consciousness of inequalities. You've kind of covered very well the what uh, we call the future, future visioning stage of, of tomorrow's cities. I just wanted to kind of to ask you one, one thing, which is, it, could you give an example? I, I know that, for example, we have, um, we congregate uh, migrant groups uh, and, well, let's say, um, People, decision makers from the municipality, and we we ask we ask them similar questions in the sense that could you imagine the future of the city? Could you give an example of how different um, people from different walks of life have 
a very different worldview and how that kind of influences the, the, the decision-making process or how, how their experiences are, are so different? It's difficult to talk about it because, as I said, it is very context-specific. So by giving examples, I, I mean, I might illustrate the situation a little bit, but I'm, I might run the risk of generalizing things too much. But um, I guess I will start with the commonalities, actually. Um, we have noticed this strong desire across cities and across social identities and groups this strong desire to be closer to nature in the future. So this yes. realization that urbanization is kind of eating the, the natural environment, we're losing contact with nature, with green spaces. Of course, that whenever people have aspirations related to, to green spaces, to more green cities, uh, there are a lot of trade-offs involved in that, and we try to discuss those trade-offs in tomorrow cities. So, for example, aspiring for a low density could lead to increased land prices, and I think Tampi might touch a little bit on that yeah, yeah. Um, when we talk about equity in decision making and so on. But so this is, a, a, for example, a common interest that we find across the room. Um, but there are um, many conflicts that emerge uh, from uh, the way that people see their um, their positions in relation to the land. So, what I'm saying this, uh, what I'm saying here is the ambition. So we're trying to move the object from the present to the future. But that is really hard because you experience the environment and you experience the city in the present. In the present. So you still have some things that you bring to the future and that you want to preserve and protect in the present towards the future. So um, I think Mark mentioned, for example, um, conflicts between um, renters and property owners, or he alluded to that as, a, as a, something that drives inequality um, very strongly in, in, in today's cities. So uh, in workshops, we can see very strongly differences between the thing that renters aspire, so focusing more on jobs and livelihood opportunities, um, in more commercially vibrant areas or focusing more on soft policies that could give them more security of tenure, whilst landowners, they're more interested in developing the land and, and kind of securing their, 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 their rights to the land. So this is a land and ownership um, of over land and, and resources is something that comes very strongly um, conflict-wise when we bring um, people from different conditions into the room. And then it's good because we surface those conflicts and we try to see, okay, so how do we understand these conflicts as decision-making, as land-use plans, as policies? How do you see that conflict actually materializing in decision-making towards the future? And now let's model that against hazards and let's look at the consequences. So let's be straightforward about, about it, surface consequence. Most importantly, you can have aspirations as much as you want, but um, it's important to also understand how those aspirations translate into practice. So what do you do on the basis of that aspiration? And is there something that we can do once we learn about decision-making better, how to make better decisions? Is there something that you can do to preserve your aspirations while still reducing risk in an equitable way and kind of trying to manage also the, the aspirations and the non-negotiables of, of different groups. So there is something interesting about that, that the modeling results, this understanding your visions and, and understanding your future good city against hazards. It gives us learning and that learning allows us to negotiate again and again what do we want and we do that in a collective and inclusive way. Yeah, well, I think that's, that's a very good point to get Tandy into the conversation now because I think you're you're somehow 
addressing issues of, of how you balance social justice in the same space, because you're talking about, for example, the, the, the conflict between landowners and, and renters. So there are very, very obvious um, conflicts here. And so if you don't address both of them, you end up with a social injustice in the same space, which can then lead not only to aggravated risk, but you, you also have social conflicts, which then make it harder for you to, to address risk issues and probably to even reduce uh, uh, the disaster risk. Um, Tomorrow Cities Project has a very, very strong social, social justice component. And I, I know that you're very uh, interested and very focused on that area of, of, of the work, Tandy. So I, I'm not even going to ask you a question. I'm just going to let you kind of introduce how Tomorrow Cities is, is doing that. Thank you, Sergio. And it's great to be kind of having this conversation with Mark and Thaisa. And I think both of them have really highlighted so many of these fundamental uh, issues that uh, our societies are witnessing today. And when we are planning for a better future, we hope and we aspire that the future would at least try and address some of these structural issues. Uh, a lot of those relate with power imbalances within a society. So coming to the point of how is tomorrow cities um, addressing issues of justice broadly, uh, we are asking two very simple questions. The first is, and a lot has already been talked about this, is who gets involved or who is involved in planning and decision-making processes? And that addresses questions of inequality that Thaisa was mentioning and concerns about how inclusive are planning processes and decision-making processes. And the second question that we're trying to address is who gets what in a city? Mm. So... There's a lot that is said about the poor or the low-income groups and the marginalized who are at the brunt of any risk in a city. And to avoid that in the future, we're trying to address concerns of equity. And when we talk about equity, we are talking about an equitable distribution of resources that is accessible to everyone, but also an equitable distribution of disaster risks in the future. So this really connects to who gets what in a city. So just as an example, in um, Tomorrow Cities, we have different city stakeholders or community members coming from different groups. They can be a women's group, a youth group, an elderly group. All of them have different experiences today. And we want them to bring those experiences to think about a better future. So when we're thinking about better futures, we are trying to understand these different voices and their different needs and resources. So when we're bringing them to this table, we are asking them to think about what would your ideal situation or a scenario be in the future? What are the right policy choices or the decisions that you need to make so that everybody in a city has equitable access to resources. And when we talk about resources, we kind of uh, identified some key themes or topics or elements, like key services, which are schools, hospitals, um, jobs, affordable housing, or even green spaces. So these are things that people are aspiring for today and also in the future. So when they are making or they are planning to think about a better future, 
we are nudging every group of uh, community members to think about all these aspects when they're designing a better future. So, and I think when, when different voices think about these concerns and these issues, this kind of will ensure what Mark was saying, that in the future, the fault lines on inequality will hopefully be able to get checked and if, if we are really optimistic, get addressed as well. So in order to kind of get to an equitable outcome, it's important to have an equitable distribution of resources and risks. Because what happens is that, yes, we've planned for a good future and you know you have maybe a disaster in the future. So you also want to plan in a way that when there is an impact of a disaster, the most vulnerable sections of the society, again, in the future, are not the ones who are most impacted. There should be at least an equitable distribution of risk going forward. So that's how planning has to be, I guess, and decision-making has to be, which is why to have such equitable outcomes, you need to have the right voices. You need to have more inclusive decision-making and planning processes. And this then relates to the question of who is involved in decision-making and planning processes. So when we are planning for a resilient urban future, it's important to get different voices. And it's also important to kind of unpack and think about the different needs and aspirations of these uh, different voices. So I guess that's, that's about it. Yeah, it's, it's, I just have one kind of last question for you, Tanvi, from your experience more. It's, would, Thaisa was, said a very interesting thing, which is, we find when we gather all these groups and we ask them similar questions about the future, that they all end up, there's, there's a very obvious thing that they all say, which is that we want to have more access to nature and to green spaces, and that's a common thing um, across, across the board. Would you say that you often find that that you have more conflicts or more converging points when you when you bring all these different groups together, which have different visions of of, of and have different experiences? And because I I can think of how at the end of the day, after you've heard all of these different voices, it's it might I can't thinking how complicated it is to kind of get them all t into an agreement of, of what, because you can't have three different urban plans, you only have one. Um, you only have one space, one city that you are planning. So you can't, so how do you kind of get them together to agree into one common urban plan that it's, it's disaster resilient and, and it's addressing all these questions of, of, of inequity and inequality and, you know. Thank you, Sergio, for that. Very, very difficult question. Um, I'll try and I don't know whether I'm going to be able to answer that question because, again, it's about, um, oh my gosh, balancing the powers, balancing the needs of every group, which is a very, very tough decision. It's also an ethical question of whose interests and whose needs are important, who is losing out more, yeah. you know, in a post-disaster situation. If a certain group in the city is losing out more, do you prioritize their needs over the others? So it's a very, very tough, I guess, task to decide. But what we try and do is we are trying to get community members to have a shared understanding of risk 
And that understanding of risk then enables them to think about a common future. So they bring to their tables different future visions. But there are some commonalities within these future visions that are then, I guess, the impact of risk will shape or will guide them to have uh, one common future. And there will obviously be some, uh, as Laisa says, the non-negotiables, or there are some specific elements that each group wants to hold on to, which we need to respect, saying, okay, this is a need, uh, for instance, the women's group. There are women group who feel that cultural centers are extremely important for them in maybe a city. So that just because that's a need that is speaking to a particular group does not mean that you kind of overlook that. You try and yeah. bring that to the table as well, and you try and respect these needs. But I guess coming to the point of are we trying to present one um, kind of desired low-risk urban plan in the future, I don't know whether that's that's the ultimate aim. The ultimate aim is for for us to think about how are these different groups trying to understand from each other the different needs that they have, the inequalities that exist, the equity concerns that exist within them, and how do we try and get them to at least think about risk and uh, participatory planning, decision making as a collective, rather than yeah, know, thinking yeah. about yeah your um, own one plan. Just stay in your 